Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, my name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you today uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, who was appointed by President Trump to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and was sworn in on January 11th, 2018. She is a leading advocate for uh, improving the regulatory environment for entrepreneurs seeking to raise capital and for reasonable regulation of emerging financial technologies, sometimes called FinTech. Her openness to new technologies has earned her the sobriquet crypto mom in certain circles. Uh, she's among the most thoughtful commissioners that I've ever known. Unlike many speeches uh, by commissioners or SEC staff that are full of bureaucratic jargon and equivocations and often take a long time to say very little, her speeches are clear, concise, and well-reasoned. They show a deep appreciation for the proper role of regulators, the difficulties that they face, and the importance of getting the rules right. They reflect a considered humility about what regulation can achieve and reject the hubris that is all too common in the federal government today. Her speeches and remarks at the commission meetings are available at the SEC website, and I recommend them to you wholeheartedly. Prior to her appointment as commissioner, Commissioner Peirce served as senior research fellow and director of the Financial Markets Working Group at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Before joining Mercatus, she worked in the staff of the Senate Banking Committee as senior counsel, while Senator Richard Shelby was the chairman. From 2004 to 2008, Commissioner Peirce worked as counsel to SEC Commissioner Paul Atkins himself, a very solid commissioner. Before that, she worked as a staff attorney in the Division of Investment Management. She was an associate at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, now Wilmer Hale, and clerk for Judge Roger Andwelt at the Court of Federal Claims before her first stint at the SEC. She is the author of Dodd-Frank, What It Does and Why It's Flawed, published in 2012, and co-editor of Reframing Financial Regulation, Enhancing Stability and Protecting Consumers, published in 2016. She is also the author of many papers and many op-eds. Commissioner Peirce earned her BA in economics from Case Western University and her JD from Yale Law School. Our event today will take the form of an interview. After that, we will take audience questions. Please join me in welcoming Commissioner Peirce. David, thank you for that very nice introduction. I've got to add my own two cents, which is um, it's, it's an honor to be up here with David, first of all. Um, second of all, 
the views that I represent are my own views and not necessarily those of the commission or my fellow commissioners. As a standard SEC disclaimer. So I would like to start. The only standard thing you'll hear, I think. <laughs> I would like to start by asking you what the SEC is, what's its mission, and how does it do its job? The SEC is our country's uh, capital markets regulator, though we do share that jurisdiction with the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which um, regulates futures and swaps. Uh, but the two of us regulate this key part of our, our financial markets, um, which really helps people to invest for their futures and manage their risks um, and distinguishes our country. I think our capital markets are much more uh, established much, much stronger than the capital markets in many other countries. So we're really, um, we're really honored to be able to be part of the regulatory framework within which those capital markets operate. <clears throat> um, you'll, you'll often hear our mission described as being protecting <clears throat> investors, facilitating capital formation and um, fostering fair, orderly and efficient markets. And so we have a number of divisions that divide up responsibility for those jobs. We have our um, Division of Investment Management, where I was a staff attorney many years ago. We have um, that division looks looks at investment advisors, um, mutual funds. Um, that's the primary jurisdiction of that division. Then we have the Division of Corporation Finance, finance which um, is the division that does what probably a lot of you think of when you think of the SEC. They review filings of public companies, um, and they they deal more broadly with um, with capital formation, um, the capital formation aspect of our mission. And then we have our division of trading and markets, which is a very broad uh, division that covers both uh, stock exchanges, alternative trading systems um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it also deals with uh, broker-dealer regulation, um, as well as regulation of entities like clearinghouses. Um, and then we have our Division of Enforcement, which is pretty self-evident, brings enforcement actions. And we also have a large uh, office of, of examinations, which goes out and examines investment advisors, uh, broker-dealers, and other entities. Um, so, so that's what we do um, in broad strokes. So what's the, what is the SEC budget? How many employees do you have? It's a relatively small agency compared to most federal agencies. It is. It, it, um, it's about 4,500 employees with a budget of about 1.67 billion, uh, and spread across 11 offices across the U.S. Um, so it's small by government standards, but it does feel pretty big. Yeah. So let's change gear a little bit. In principle or normatively speaking, what should be the role of regulators uh, in the capital markets? Uh, what, what should be the objective of financial regulation? I think that the main objective is to build a regulatory framework within which people can come uh, to engage in transactions that that are mutually beneficial. So we don't want to really uh, be in the business of saying this is a good transaction or a bad transaction. We want to be in the business of making sure that people get the information they need um, to make decisions about whether they want to enter into, into a transaction or not. Um, and we want to be in the business of, of policing the markets for, for, uh, fraud. But beyond that, I think it really should be 
a pretty hands-off approach. Uh, market forces are really good at disciplining. And so often when we try to come in and we try to jump over those market forces and come up with our own disciplining mechanism, it can be less effective. Um, now, we obviously have quite a few rules in our in our markets. Uh, our rule book grows every year. And so I wouldn't say that we completely uh, restrain ourselves to, to that model that I set out. But I really think it's incumbent upon a regulator to think very carefully before it decides to, to jump in between two parties who are trying to voluntary, voluntarily interact with one another. So do you think we're meeting the objectives you outlined, or are there things that you think the SEC and the securities laws do particularly well, or areas that you really think we need to consider reforms? I think the framework has been a, a successful one um, for we've been in existence for about 85 years, and I think it's been been successful, certainly at getting information to investors that they might want when they're making decisions. Uh, we've been we've been a successful had a successful model. I think on the uh, investment advisor side, we've had a, a pretty principles based approach, um, and I think that has been successful. But you know, as any regulator, we have to think um, constantly about what we can do better. There are always things that we can do better. What maybe we shouldn't be doing that we've just been doing because we've been doing it, uh, and maybe things that we need to do that we haven't been doing. So there's always room for improvement, but I think in broad strokes we've been successful. I'm there, you know. I'm often quite outspoken in my criticism of the agency because I think there are many areas where we can um, modernize ourselves and where where we really do need to be a little more introspective about whether we're imposing our preferences on investors and on markets. And those are the places where I'd really like to see some change, some some willingness to think a little bit more creatively about how we can maybe allow more freedom in our markets um, for our markets to operate. But on the whole, I think our, our capital markets are really strong, and I think part of that is an effective regulatory framework. Roughly $1.7 trillion in capital was raised in 2018 using Regulation D, which is a safe harbor uh, under the private offering exemption. This makes Regulation D uh, a more important means of raising capital than either the public registered market or any other exemption. Regulation D offerings are generally only available to accredited investors who are typically, according to the latest SEC numbers, in the top 13% of investors by income or net worth. Do you think it makes sense to democratize access to Regulation D offerings by either in giving content to the sophisticated investor uh, concept that's in Re- Regulation D but not used very much because there's not a lot of uh, bright line tests or ways for issuers to, to gauge whether someone's sophisticated or otherwise change the definition of a credit investor? Yeah, I think this is an area where where we do stand in the way of people doing with their money what they would like to do with their money. And it strikes me as as um a bit paternalistic to do that. Um again, we're our motives are are good in that in the sense that we're trying to make sure that people who um may not have the the money to hire someone who's sophisticated or may not themselves be sophisticated um, don't invest a lot of money and end up losing it. So there's there's a good motive behind it, but 
when you think about it, if you tell, if you say, well, these offerings over here are only available to people who have really high incomes or, or who have a lot of wealth, um, the rest of you, you can be over here in this part of the market. It just strikes me the wrong way. So in my ideal, um, in my ideal regulatory framework, people could opt in to a more, a more protected framework or they could opt out and they could, they could be, um, less protected. Are we taking questions now? Because we're already getting one. No. Okay. Questions will be at the end of the interview, but we will leave time for, for questions. So in any event, I, I would I would say that it makes sense to um, to open that up and allow more people to have the option. Actually, Ford was the one who was going to ask a question, and I think he's raised a really interesting aspect of um, of of the way the accredited investor definition plays out. So we're all here on the East Coast, and people on the East Coast tend to make a fair amount of money. Uh, people on the West Coast have high salaries uh, as well. So then you look at the middle of the country, and that's where I'm from, and uh, the salaries just aren't as high. And so to meet those those thresholds, you have to be in a different place, essentially, in the, in the, in the Midwest than you do if you're living on the East Coast. And so it has the effect of being geographically discriminatory, uh, and, and that's something that I worry about because we see that a lot of the capital anyway is flowing to the coasts. Um, and so if we really want to open up the, the uh, capital formation in the Midwest, I think we need to, to rethink the accredited investor definition. And also, I think it, you know, it's not only geographic, but I think if you look at um, – an entrepreneur who may be in a community that doesn't know a lot of wealthy people, but her family and friends really believe in what she's trying to do, they can't, they can't invest. It makes it much harder for them to invest in what she's trying to do. And so I'd like to, again, open that up and allow, allow more freedom. Now, we did just put out a concept release where we asked some questions. I think, um, one, a lot of people are, are talking about whether we need to do something to broaden the accredited investor standard. And a lot of the suggestions are to look at other ways to measure sophistication. So you could look at, for example, if someone uh, has a degree, a PhD in chemistry, surely uh, that should open up some opportunities because, because she has expertise in that area. So you could let her invest in, in things that would draw on her, her professional expertise. The 2012 Jobs Act substantially revised Regulation A, and the implementing SEC uh, amendments contained a number of very positive changes, but also retained, especially for Tier 1, because Regulation A is now divided into Tier 1 and Tier 2, uh, aspects of Regulation A that had rendered it virtually a dead letter prior to the Jobs Act. In 2018, Regulation A Tier 2 offerings amounted to about $675 million, while Tier 1 offerings were a tenth of that, about $61 million. To me, an obvious improvement would be to uh, provide blue sky preemption for secondary uh, Reg A offerings uh, because the SEC provided for the first time preemption for the primary offerings in Tier 2, and also to provide blue sky preemption for Tier 1 offerings. My question to you is, are there um, changes to Regulation A that you think make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'd be open to considering both of those suggestions. I'd be open to considering raising the limits on Reg A offerings, which um, are now at $50 million. Um, and I think we we don't see people necessarily 
um, pushing up against that cap. But I think if you raise the cap to 75 or 100 million, for example, you could open that option up to a whole different group of issuers and the, the professionals that would work alongside issuers and raising capital. Um, so that's something that, that we can think about. Again, the concept release that we just put out is an opportunity for people to weigh in on changes they think are necessary um, on Reg A and other issues. So I, I recommend that people do that. Okay. Title three of the, of the 2012 Jobs Act created a crowdfunding exemption, which allows entrepreneurs to raise up to a million dollars, a little bit more now, um, in capital over the internet and small amounts from large numbers of ordinary investors. In 2018, this exemption was used to raise a very modest $55 million, according to the latest SEC information. To me, this is no great surprise because the level of regulation, particularly for Tier 3 crowdfunding offerings, is, is quite high. Uh, do you, what reforms do you think are warranted either in Reg CS or the underlying statute because it's very prescriptive? Uh, and, and is there anything that you'd like to bring to people's attention that was in the report released on uh, by the agency on crowdfunding last week? Um, well, as to the last question, I think um, if you look in that report, you'll see a map of where the crowdfunding offerings are happening. And once again, um, it's the coasts, uh, the places where there was already uh, there was already broader access to capital as opposed to the middle of the country. So I think we we have more work to do. Um, crowdfunding was an idea that had a lot of popular support, um, and you know, really was the idea of. There was, there was crowdfunding going on already. It was just that you couldn't be part of the, the, um, business and this, you could, you could give money and you could get, you know, on a, on a, a webpage that would allow you to maybe get a t-shirt or something like that, but you couldn't be part of, uh, you couldn't get, get some equity in the actual thing or you couldn't do it, be part of a debt offering. And so the idea was to allow people to actually use this as a, as an investment um, as a capital formation tool that really it hadn't been able to be before. And I think it hasn't lived up to that promise because there are a lot of restrictions on it. And some of that did come from the statute. Some of that came from our regulations. I think now that we've had a little experience, it makes sense to go back and look at both the statute and the regulatory framework and see if they're if there are adjustments that we can make. And again, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but I'm going to point back to the concept release again. Um, this was a broad concept release that was really designed to get people's thoughts on a whole range of capital formation issues. And so I urge people to write in if they have suggestions about changes that we can make on particular points like crowdfunding um, or just on the broader point of, you know, we've created quite a complex set of um, exemptions and options for people to raise capital. I worry that what we're doing is creating such a complicated set that the small businesses that we're trying to really help with this can get lost in all of the complexity of the law. So if there are things that we can do to simplify the regime, that would be helpful to know. Of course, a lot of that is driven by the statutory framework we're working in. So some of that isn't really in our control. Um, but I think it's a good project for people to think about. I mean, what happens when you've had an agency that's been around for as long as we have and our laws have been around for so long, you just sort of end up layering on top and you you don't get to take the step back and say, is this really working or could we 
streamline the whole thing. Well, you mentioned a concept release uh, a couple times. Uh, the concept release came out last week. Uh, it's called the Concept Release on Harmonization of Securities Offerings Exemptions. It's a 211-page document seeking Which is comments. short yeah. by our standards. Yeah, although I think it's uh, seeking comments on something like uh, 138 separate issues. Uh, so including Reg D, Reg A, crowdfunding, interest rate offerings, integration, secondary markets, and preemption, and as well as a number of other things. Whether we should deregulate offerings altogether. Yeah. So I guess since we've been talking about it, I wanted to ask you if there's anything in the concept of release that you haven't already mentioned that you'd like to bring to people's attention and where you see it heading. Well, I think uh, people should take a look at it and don't feel intimidated by its length or by the number of questions in it. As with any of these things, if you want to weigh in on one very specific aspect, uh, do it. You can just send in a quick email, send in a letter um, if if you want to be more formal. But we love to get feedback, so please give feedback on whatever part or parts you're interested in. Um, you know, as I say, I think there... I just mentioned the deregulation of offerings. I think one question to ask is, you know, we, we focused a lot in the past on whether there's general solicitation or not, which means you're, you can advertise to anyone or do you have to target your advertising instead to just accredited investors? And I think one question is, does that framework really make sense or could you broaden, broaden it out and say, we really don't care who you make your offerings to. We are going to look at who you're selling to but we're not going to look at, at, at how broad that offering is. Would that help the information flow? Would that actually be a, a useful thing for us to do? So that's one thing. But, I mean, there are lots of aspects of this concept release that I think raise really important questions, and I'm really interested in, in feedback on the whole range of things. Um, so please take a look at it. Since the mid-1990s, the number of public companies in the U.S. has declined almost by half. Uh, the number of IPOs is a, a small fraction of what it was uh, in the uh, 90s uh, or even the 80s. Uh, in fact, I guess in 2018, there was 134 IPOs raising about $34 billion. This compares to three to 600 IPOs annually in the 80s and 90s. Do you see this as a problem? What do you think is the reason for it? And what do you think we should do about it? I do think it's a problem because the public markets are the ones where most of our retail investors are able to participate. And it, it's we want them to be able to build up their um, their retirements and their children's education funds. And so it is important. And Chairman Clayton came into the SEC saying that he thought it was important as well. And as as he described it, a lot of the growth now is happening at a stage when it's really only accessible to people who have access to those private markets, to investors who have access to those private markets. And so by the time the growth has happened, um, that's the time when companies are going public. That's the point at which retail investors have access. And so I think he's done a really good job of raising this question and, and looking at it from a number of different perspectives the concept release is part of this to ask um, to ask questions about how we can think about offerings um, on the private side uh, in part and and then we're also thinking more generally about what can we do to make it cheaper to be a public company while still maintaining appropriate investor protection uh, and 
that requires us thinking about, you know, are all the disclosure rules that we have in place, do they make sense? Again, as I said, we've layered on top of each other for many years. So are there things that we can do um, to take away requirements that just aren't useful to people? Um, we also need to think about litigation expense because one reason that companies don't love going public is that when they go public, they're guaranteed when their share price drops, they're going to be faced with uh, with shareholder litigation. So are there options that we can open to people or at least, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, um, if people set up a, a, a type of um, arrangement that works well for them, then we shouldn't stand in the way of that. So arbitration is something that some companies have suggested as a way of dealing with shareholder shareholder disputes instead of going to court. That could be a cheaper option. And so should companies uh, just be allowed to to, uh, to allow that um, or should we stand in the way of it? Um, then I think there, there are questions about market structure. So sometimes the main driver for a company to go public is liquidity. They think, okay, great. Our shareholders really want to have the ability to sell their stock when they, when they want it to sell. And so we're going to go public and they go public and they find out, lo and behold, it's not working that well. The market structure actually doesn't serve very small companies well. So are there things that we can do, um, to allow exchanges to experiment with better ways, um, for small companies' stock to trade. Um, so I think there are a whole range of, of issues that we need to consider, and I don't think there's one silver bullet, but the chairman has really made an effort to work across a number of those issues. Well, since we're on the subject of public companies, let me raise a, a couple of other related questions. Uh, about a year ago, the, the commission increased the thresholds for what is a smaller reporting company, and they're considering, in effect, harmonizing or quasi-harmonizing the accelerated filer definition. Um, and that, uh, has, at least according to DARE's numbers, will mean that about a 1,000 additional public companies don't have to comply with some of the more onerous aspects of being a, a public company, uh, notably 404B internal controls reporting. Uh, do, you, do you see further progress on that front and uh, sort of related to that, do you think there's any merit in the idea of building on the emerging growth company concept that was in the Jobs Act and trying to extend that? That currently is for companies that have under a billion dollars in revenues and are making a new offering, they they're relieved from some of the the more onerous aspects of being a public company for five years, but then that goes away. Do you sh and then lastly, again, Regulation SK, which governs the non-financial disclosure. Uh, by public companies or registered companies. The SEC has been studying and uh, Congress put pressure, at least until recently, on the SEC to try to improve Regulation SK. Again, that's a, a burden on public companies. Do you see improvement in any of these areas, things that you think uh, we should focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are a lot of areas. So just to go in reverse order, on Reg SK, I think we've made some Adjustments around the around the edges, but we're continuing continuing to look at, and I think there's more that we can do on the front of non-financial uh, disclosures. Thinking about about streamlining those, um, making sure that they're still giving investors the the material information they need to make their decisions. Um, 
in terms of the EGCs, can we learn from what we've done there and expand it perhaps uh, past this this uh, EGC period? I think we can, and we we have learned some lessons from that space. Um, and and I'm open to that, but again, we're we're always limited by what our statutory framework allows us to do. Um, and then the first part of your question, you're going to have to remind me of because the you smaller reporting. Oh yeah, smaller reporting. 404. How could I forget? So interestingly, Sarbanes-Oxley 404B has been an issue that's been around and gotten a lot of attention for for um, since it since it went into effect. Um, and so there's a requirement that you get an your independent auditor to attest to your internal controls, uh, and this has proved to be a really expensive part of Sarbanes-Oxley. And so when it first went into effect, it was extremely expensive. The SEC worked with the PCAOB and it was it was streamlined, but it still remains a, a very expensive part of a public company's regulatory obligations. And so the idea of allowing smaller companies to opt out of that um, is is kind of has been around and and we have allowed smaller companies but the question is how many small companies should be allowed so i think we're not being um i i would like to align the definitions fully uh you mentioned the partial alignment that we proposed um but what we're looking at now is is we're looking at pre-revenue companies essentially and saying does it really make sense? Do investors really want them to spend the money that they're taking in on paying external auditors to review internal controls over what is a, probably a fairly simple set of internal controls, given that they're pre-revenue? Um, or would the investors rather have that money be applied to hiring scientists who can actually work on testing the drug or whatever it is you're making? And I think the answer to that question is, is probably that investors would not want their money going to the independent auditors, but it might not be. I mean, we that's a question for investors to determine. As long as we tell them uh, what the company, make sure that the company is very clear that it's not getting this 404B audit, um, my view is that any company of any size um, should be able to say, hey, we do this or we don't do this and let investors decide if they want to put their money into the company or not. But there is the statutory requirement. So um, I don't think that we're going to go to the place where all companies are just saying, yes, we do or no, we don't do this. Um, but I'm certainly eager to hear hear people's comments on this topic. Um, and based on those comments, we'll see we'll see where we go. Finders are private placement brokers or persons who are paid to assist a small business to find uh, capital using an accredited investor by making introductions to investors. Finders are particularly important in regions where there are cities and states where there's not a lot of accredited investors, people who earn uh, over 300000 or have a residence exclusive net worth over a million dollars, which would be much of this country. Uh, so in 2000, the Securities and Exchange Commission created a regulatory cloud associated with finders or private placement brokers, uh, particularly by uh, uh, withdrawing a no-action letter that, that gave some comfort to people. Um, and the the concept release mentioned that the Division of Trading and Markets is evaluating this. And, of course, recently there was a no-action letter on business brokers. What do you think should be done about this situation, and do you see any 
uh, prospect that it, it will be resolved. Uh, I suppose the other thing I should mention is Congressman Bud in the last Congress introduced legislation that would uh, ad- uh, address the problem based partially on an ABA proposal and then uh, for smaller intermittent finders and outright uh, exemption. I think there is interest at the SEC now, and in, in, I mean, this has been an issue that's been plaguing people for a long time because essentially people are operating in a, a gray area of the law, and some people may actually, uh, you know, not be complying with the law. And I think when we face this kind of situation where we see people um, trying to fit themselves into a regulatory framework that doesn't quite work right for them, we need to give it some thought. So there is some interest now at the SEC in giving some thought to what we can do to, to um, you know, whether it's developing a rule for finders that works for them and that, that adjusts the regulatory requirements in a way that's appropriate for them. Um, we're taking some other approach, but I think we're, we're open to that. So again, if people have suggestions on that, on, on how we should proceed there, some people have already come to talk to me, which I appreciate. I welcome others to come in and talk to me about this as well. When the commission voted to prohibit the BATS uh, BZX exchange from uh, listing and trading a Bitcoin-based exchange-traded product, you dissented. Uh, why did you disagree with the other commissioners? I thought that that the um, exchange-traded product, as it was proposed, met the requirements of the statute. Um, and I thought my colleagues were looking beyond what the statute authorized them to do and looking underneath to the underlying marketplace and saying, we don't like that marketplace. Um, Bitcoin markets are messy, and so we don't like them, and they don't look like our markets, and so we're just not going to allow that product that's based on Bitcoin to trade in our markets. And my response to that is there are a lot of markets that are messy, yet we build securities products on top of them, um, and they're built in a way that takes into account some of the messiness of the underlying markets um, and and allowing them to tra- those products to trade on our exchanges that are quite regulated actually can be a very good institutional discipline mechanism on the underlying markets. So... I think to some extent you can you can address the problems by allowing an institutional market to grow up uh, in our markets that then puts positive pressure on the underlying markets. I mean, there was also, I thought, a thread of one concern that I had when I came to the SEC was that the agency is old and it's it's not historically been great with innovation, um, and that's as I've said elsewhere, is it's a very natural reaction for a regulator. When a regulator is presented with something new, someone comes in and says, hey, I'd like to try this new idea. Our safest response is to say, mm, sorry, why don't you stick with the old traditional stuff? Because we know how to regulate that. We're familiar with it. We know the players in that market. Um, and so that's really not a healthy state of being. We want people to come in with innovation we want to see um, we want to see change um, because those innovations ultimately serve people serve investors well. And so, how can we as a regulator um, be responsible in carrying out our, respons- our our duties as a regulator, but also allow people to try new things? 
Um, and I thought this was a classic example of where someone came in, said, I want to try something new. And we said, uh, it scares us too much. So no. Um, and so that was, that was another piece of, of why I objected. In April, the SEC released a 13-page document called a Framework for Investment Contract Analysis of Digital Assets. In my view, it's a reasonable statement of the, of the current statement of the law, but it involves weighing, by my count, nearly 60 factors in making a determination of, of whether a digital asset is a security. And any test that has that many factors is at risk of it being inherently arbitrary in, in practice. My question to you is, can we do better? I hope so. Again, I think we have some great staff at the SEC who are working hard on these issues. Um, and I think some of that hard work is reflected in in that guidance. Um, but at the same time, if I'm out there as a practitioner trying to advise people on how to comply and I'm confronted with a document that does have all of these factors, doesn't give me a sense of how to weight them, um, it really leads to paralysis, I think. And and it has led a lot of people, some of whom have come and talked to me, um, to just say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to move outside the U.S. I'm not going to deal with the U.S. because the framework, it's not that it's too strenuous or too, too, too onerous of a framework. It's just that I don't know what it is. I don't know how to comply. Um, and that's not a good state of, of affairs. Now, the securities laws in defining what a security is or specifically what an investment contract is, which is we're saying a lot of these initial coin offerings fit within this investment contract um, subset of securities, we've typically had this open-ended approach, which is based on a court case, the Howey case, um, and that has required you to apply judgment to facts and circumstances. So, it's not surprising that we're doing the same thing in this area that we've done in other areas. I would argue that Howie has probably been over, um, overly broad in other areas as well. Um, but I think it's really problematic in how it applies to tokens, to crypto tokens. Um, I think it will, if we apply it um, in the way that that we have been applying it, I think it will ultimately make it impossible for a token to become functional um, on a network and still work within our securities laws. So I've come around to the place where, and I wasn't here originally when I started thinking about this issue, but I've come around to thinking that we really need to develop a safe harbor framework. Where, statutory safe harbor? Well, either statutory or I think we could do it, um, we at the SEC could do it as a regulatory safe harbor which would ensure that people would get some disclosure, the disclosure that they need um, in connection with these tokens, but wouldn't prevent them from using them in ways that they're intended to be used as, as you know, for, for the purpose that they're designed. Um, this is an area that I'm thinking about, and so I urge people to come in and talk to me about it. If they have ideas what that framework might look like, it's, um, I don't have a fully formed framework in mind yet. So now is the time to come talk to me about it and, and give me suggestions. 
Marketplace lending and peer-to-peer lending uh, have developed much more slowly in the United States than abroad. And part of the reason for that is the SEC's early intervention against Lending Club and Prosper uh, when they were making small business loans and the high cost of filing frequent registration statements with the SEC. And part of the reason, I think, is the divided regulatory environment where you have the SEC, but also a whole host of banking regulators. Um, what what do you think can be done to improve the situation for peer-to-peer lending and marketplace lending? Well, I think that that you, you point out um, the regulatory fragmentation, which has been a problem in this area. Um, there's there is a fair amount of cooperation now between among the different financial regulators, and I think the the um, non-bank lending has gotten more attention recently. So I do think that there is a chance for us to make some changes. I don't know that we're going to back off the framework that we imposed with requiring the the filing of registration statements. Um, But, you know, I think that would require probably a a legislative change if we were going, going to do that. But there is an openness to considering what we can do to to facilitate these products because I think a lot of people recognize that they're a way to open up um, financing to people and businesses who wouldn't otherwise get it. So if you, again, if you have suggestions on this point, I'm open to hearing them. What do you think of the idea of a regulatory sandbox that's been implemented by the UK and other governments to allow regulatory experimentation with respect to financial innovation? It's not my preferred solution. I always like to say I don't like sandboxes. I like beaches where people, again, are a little bit more free to run around and they don't have a regulator sitting in the sandbox watching their every uh, every move as they build their sandcastles. Um, but I think it can be an effective way to get regulators more comfortable with what the innovations are and how those innovations might serve people. Um and serve the society in general. So it can be a, it can be a great way to familiarize regulators with what's going on. I just think we have to be careful to, um, make sure that people can innovate without the regulators sitting there, um, at every step, assessing every step, um, and weighing in at every step because innovation is something that has to happen with a little bit more, um, free, you know, freedom to think and, and experiment. So to the extent a sandbox can be a, a framework within which people can do that, that's fine. If it becomes something that is just um, a regulatory roadblock at every step, I don't think it will work. In 2015, while you were at the Mercatus Center, you wrote a paper entitled The Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, Not Self-Regulation After All. I've written uh, about problems with transparency, accountability, and due process at FINRA. I also have concerns about inadequate congressional and SEC oversight of FINRA. Uh, In 2016, the SEC stood up a new office that, in principle, was designed to provide greater uh, oversight of FINRA, although it's not clear that that's made much of a difference. Do you think reforms at FINRA or other SROs are needed, or and do you think – there's changes that should be made in how the SEC oversees the SROs. Well, I think Physio, which is the office at the SEC that oversees FINRA, is doing a good job. Um, and I think that the the head of our Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations, Pete Driscoll, takes that part of his responsibility very seriously. 
Uh, as you said, both of us have, have laid out concerns about the self, quote unquote, self-regulatory model. Um, it's sort of, I think, more accurately described as a quasi-governmental regulatory model. Um, and I, you know, it's something that we do have to watch, watch over and watch out for because these organizations do have a lot of power over, over, um, broker dealers in, in this case. Um, and hence over investors because if broker dealers aren't properly regulated, investors are the ones who are going to suffer as a result. That said, I think that there has been progress in the, in the past couple of years. I think Robert Cook has done an excellent job at listening to people. Um, firms from small to large have come and talked to him. He's, he's reached out to people like you, I think, and to people, um, who have been critical of, of FINRA, which I think is really positive when someone is willing to hear from the people who have been very outspoken. I think that's positive. They're doing some reorganization, um, efforts there at FINRA, which I think could yield very positive results. Um, we need to do a better job as, uh, as in coordinating with FINRA. Um, and I think we're working on, on that issue as well. I think the issue will, will, um, definitely come to a head in connection with, we, we recently adopted a new rule regulation BI, which governs, which sets a standard for how, um, broker dealers providing recommendations to their retail clients, how they have to proceed. And so this will be a really good opportunity for us to work with FINRA. Um, in implementing that rule, and I think can be very positive for that relationship and positive for our oversight of FINRA. Um, and then another area where I think FINRA has has really stepped up its game in recent years is they are taking economic analysis quite seriously, and so they're applying um, that economic analysis to their rulemaking function and really thinking about how they can better tailor rules based on the data that they have. So I think there are a number of positive changes. Certainly agree with you that we need to continue to monitor what they're doing. And again, you know, I keep saying come talk to me, but please do come talk to me if there are issues that you see in the markets where FINRA is not getting getting things right. That is something I need to hear about so that I can then go um, and talk to them about it. It's always struck me how haphazard, intermittent, and incomplete the data used by policymakers in the securities regulation area is. The SEC's Division of Economic and Risk uh, Analysis, or DARA, puts out from time to time very helpful information. There was a lot of it in the uh, concept release, but you, you can go years without getting that updated. And when you, I work in other areas besides this, and the contrast between, say, IRS statistics of income or Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor statistics or the information provided in the healthcare area, transportation, education, or the general economic statistics provided by the Bureau of Economic Analysis or Census is pretty stark. I mean, in the securities regulation area, we're operating with much less information. And it seems to me that DARA with 175 employees and a $72 million budget should be able to put out fairly regular data books providing basic information about securities markets. Uh, and over the years, I've talked to a lot of commissioners, a lot of members of Congress. Everybody seems to agree that this is a problem, but nobody really ever does anything about it. What do you think we can do about it? 
We do have a new chief economist, relatively new chief economist, and um, he's someone who I think would like to hear more about this idea, so I think you should talk to him about it. Okay. Um, and, and I will do the same. Okay. Soon for it. Uh, I have just a couple more quick questions about the SEC. Um, 20% of the 4,600 or so employees at the SEC in 2017 were managers. Uh, that means that there's uh, uh, four employees for every manager. And that's uh, a much uh, higher level of management than in most organizations, which have a ratio of 5 to 1 to 10 to 1. Uh, it, and it's sort of a, a data point that I think gets at the idea of the SEC's management heavy and bureaucratized. Uh, do you think there's – would you agree that there's sort of too much management and not enough people uh, uh, at the point of the spear at the SEC? Do you see it as a problem? Do you think there's anything we can do about it? Well, we are a bureaucracy, so <laughs> we, we are bureaucratized. In terms of the, the number of managers, look, we're an agency primarily of lawyers. We also have a lot of economists, as you mentioned. We have accountants. Um, and so it's, it's a human capital intensive agency. Um, and so you're, you need to make sure that people are well managed. The SEC has looked over time at different ways, um, to manage and different structures. So for example, um, in enforcement, there used to be branch chiefs, um, and that was sort of the lowest level of supervision and that that position was phased out, um, but it's difficult. You know, you want to make sure that people are using their time well, and part of that does require good management. And I think we have a lot of excellent managers at the SEC. A lot of the people, you know, you, you give the ratios, but a lot of the people who are classified as managers spend a lot of their time doing non-management type work. So it's not as if they're only sitting around and, and watching other people work. Um, so, you know, I think... We have a chairman now who's very pragmatic and is thinking about lots of aspects of the agency and, and, um, so certainly thinking about how, how best to run the agency. Um, but I, I think on the whole, um, the way that it's, it's set up works quite well. Um, it's always hard when you have this many employees spread over, over, um, so many different offices to maintain consistency. Um, across all of the agency. Um, and so that's always a challenge for us. I think um, one of the concerns I have is that, you know, we have the commission structure, so there are five of us, with one of them being chairman over the agency. The chairman has has direct responsibility, staff report to him. Um, but, you know, the agency is dealing with lots of different issues, and that means that um, we're getting questions all the time. Staff is getting questions from outside. How does the law apply to the facts and circumstances of my particular case? And so um, we're the staff has to interact with those people and provide guidance, but at the same time, ultimate decisions rest at the level of the commission. So how do you um, how do you draw the distinction between proper guidance given at the staff level? And things that really need to be kicked up to the commission level, and those kind of challenges, I think, are are probably our our biggest um, challenge as an agency, and similar to what other agencies face. But maintaining, you know, the ability to be flexible and provide guidance while at the same time 
also making sure that the policy is being made um, at the commission level. Serious questions have been raised about the neutrality and impartiality of the administrative law judges at the SEC or the administrative law courts by the Wall Street Journal and others writing in the law reviews. The Financial Choice Act last Congress uh, would have allowed respondents to choose between the administrative law courts or ordinary Article Three federal courts. Uh, what are your thoughts about appropriate reforms in the SEC's administrative law courts? Well, I think that the, the notion of having um, people choose, which is something that we can do ourselves, um, is a good one. I, I think there are advantages to the administrative um, ju- ALJs having that system in place. It can be a lot quicker than going through court, and so some people would actually prefer that approach. Um, our ALJs are very seasoned and experienced, and so um, – and, and knowledgeable about securities law, so that can be also a, a positive. Um, there are we did make some procedural adjustments um, several years ago, and I think we could do more to address some of the concerns that people going through the administrative process have about whether the, there's a level playing field um, between, on the one hand, enforcement and on the other. Um, the outside respondent. So there are some adjustments that we might consider making there. Um, obviously, the the constitutional challenges and those types of issues are above my pay grade. Um, but you know that's something that affects ALJs, I think, across across the government as well. All right. Uh, the last thing I'd like to address is potential structural reforms at the SEC. And there's a number of things I'm going to sort of throw out there, and then ask you if you think. There's any anything that you'd like to comment on? I mean, one possibility is to reduce the number of reports to the chairman, which I think is up to 23. Uh, merging overlapping functions that different offices within the SEC have, uh, changing regional offices, either opening new ones or closing some of the existing ones, increasing the role of commissioners other than the chairman in setting the SEC's agenda, uh, the uh, IT spending and effectiveness, and also improving Edgar. Uh, and then contract review and oversight, and the IG staffing levels are very high compared to other agencies. Uh, are any of these things you'd like to comment on, and are there any structural reforms at the SEC that you think make sense? Well, I think one aspect that I'd like to comment on is the, the regional office structure you raised. I think I, during my time at the SEC, I've had a chance to visit all the regional offices and have been really impressed with um, – you know, the, the dedication and quality of the people in those offices and the, the importance of having a presence outside of DC, um, not only in the sense of, of examination and enforcement, which is what most of those regional offices do. They have, uh, big staffs of examiners to examine local firms and then they have enforcement attorneys to, to bring enforcement cases where necessary. But I think having the presence in those communities, um, make sure that we maintain a little bit of a better connection to what's happening outside of D.C. So um, that's something that I think it's important that, you know, maybe we need to think about other regional, opening other regional offices. Seattle comes to mind. uh, That's, you know, a possibility. We actually used to have an office up there. Um, I think years ago we we used to. Um, So there, there are options like that. And then in terms of Getting other commissioners involved. Chairman Clayton has been very good at getting us involved in the, in the work 
Obviously, the agenda is ultimately his to set as chairman, but he's been very active um, or very conscious of 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 taking advantage of having a, a, a commission. And so, for example, um, I was working with the chairman in the chairman's office um, and still am on, on part of Dodd-Frank, which isn't done yet, which is relates to security-based swaps. Um, and we're trying to stand up a regulatory framework in that area. And he's allowed me to be very involved in that particular project. And um, Commissioner Roisman is working uh, very hard on the proxy reforms um, taking taking the lead in that area, so I think that's been an effective way to take advantage of of the fact that we have different commissioners um, and really drawing on on all of our time and and ability. I'd like to open it to audience questions. Uh, if you could state your name and the institutional affiliation, and then the a microphone. So wait for the microphone. We'll start with Ford since he's been championing a bit, and then we'll go. Yeah. I- Wait, wait for the mic, so, so particularly for the benefit of the people watching online. Thank you. My question is geared more to Edgar. Institutional affiliation, then the question. All right. My name is Ford Ladd. Uh, I'm an attorney, uh, and I've practiced securities law and, you know, has worked on some of the legislative activities and rulemaking. Um, my question is directed at, at Edgar so that we can get better qualified information that might provide a need to co- – demonstrate the need for Congress to perform. And there's this, is there, are there any current programs to modify Edgar so that the public can do more granular researches on costs of distribution and, and other activities with regard to Reg D, Reg A type offerings? And secondly, is there any way in which the SEC could link its database on Edgar with that of the SEC, or I mean of the IRS, and then be able to provide uh, uh, disclosable reports showing what the average rate of return of some of these other offerings have been. And my reason for that is, is because, as you know, we've talked about the regional bias that's occurring with raising capital uh, under our securities law. But also, if you uh, if you remember, the uh, Angel Capital Association was reporting that its average rate of return was 27% by its members. And that the uh, national venture capital is at 29, which is a little bit better than what people have experienced in the market in in various years. So on the second point of of linking with the IRS and trying to um, help with figuring out what returns are, I have not heard that suggestion before. Um, so I don't know. I'm I, you know I'm not sure that that's at the top of our agenda as it goes. Um, to, you know, we've got a lot of information technology challenges as any large regulator does because, you know, we do take in a lot of data. And so protecting that data is really our, is our first, um, objective. Making sure that Edgar is usable to people is probably our second objective along those lines. And so, um, certainly your suggestions on those, on the, the first point, I would suggest you write in uh, write them in, in, in as a comment to the concept release. I think that's an interesting idea and, and would be useful for the commission to hear. Just for those of you who don't know, EDGAR stands for, let's see if I get this right, Electronic Data Gathering and Retrieval System. It's the primary means by which SEC disclosure documents are made available to the public. 
and it basically feels like it, you're dealing with a 1980s computer. When yeah, it, it definitely could use some modernization. So again, I think those are the types of things that we're thinking about when we look at Edgar. This gentleman and then this lady in the back. Uh, my name is Trent Cunningham. I'm with the University of San Diego School of Law. Um, so after read, I, I haven't got through the whole concept release, but seeing the data on uh, the, the effect of uh, in the Midwest versus the coasts about, you know, when it comes to capital formation, the ability of people to raise capital in the Midwest. And I can, this idea of managing risk. So we start out with this, this kind of noble concept of managing risk, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of perverted people's ability to manage their own risk. Like for someone to tell me what I can and can't do, uh, with my money, it just, it, it, I don't like it personally and I don't think other people do. Um, and just make, cause you make $200,000, you know, we see with concept, things like Theranos, that means nothing. You can be a great board member and still be duped. Um, and so if you look at millennials, my generation, our, our view of risk has changed. Um, you know, we, we want to invest in Bitcoin, highly speculative, maybe not a good idea. Uh, it's a good idea right now. I mean, it's gone up quite a bit and I know some friends have made a lot. Um, and as well as like ESG investing, I know it's something you've talked about for some millennials, they're willing to put aside maybe making money in order to, to, because there's other risks that they're concerned about. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, so if there's a way that we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the generations are changing there as, and so they're, Evaluation of risk is changing. And so how we can enter that into the conversation about reform. I think you, you raise a really important point, which is that, so investors think in terms of risk, they think in terms of their whole portfolio, and maybe as you suggest, think beyond their portfolio to, you know, the rest of their lives, right? So they're trying to, they're trying to fit an investment within that broader picture. We often at the SEC think about investments as very, um, very individual things. So is this particular investment good or bad? That's not really what we should be thinking about, but I think sometimes we come to the question that way instead of thinking, no, this might be something that a particular investor wants access to because it fits really well within the rest of what that investor is trying to do in, in her portfolio or in her life. And so it, it is important for us to to, to take it from that from that perspective, and I think it's a great reminder that you raise. Hi, this lady back here. I my name is Amy McEwen. I am a former financial analyst, and I work for a registered broker dealer that's not publicly traded. I've actually been trying to make a complaint about them for months, and my computer is being hacked. As is my phone. You can hear static, and it's relating to dialogue from that employer. Like there's strong correlation that suggests my former employer is hacking my computer. I have called the police, and there are four states now that have police reports. That's not the proper jurisdiction. So I've actually walked into your office to make a complaint, and you do not have a process for emergency complaints under that scenario. So I need to get to you to make a complaint against my former employer. So I can certainly um, connect you with people at the SEC who can listen to your complaint. We typically now, I will say, we typically take complaints by uh, on on the computer that you can file a tip complaint uh, referral. Um, so it's a TCR system, but there is a way you can send a letter in. So that way wouldn't require you to, you can handwrite it too. You don't have to type it. 
Um, so that would allow you to, to raise the issue. That would be probably what I would suggest that you do, and, and we can find that address for you to send it into. Hi, my name is Hannah Laver, and I'm with the Financial Services Institute. You've spoken in the past about the importance of ensuring that firms know what their regulatory obligations are uh, prior to taking enforcement action, particularly in the context of the Share Class Selection Disclosure Initiative. Um, our members are similarly concerned of this about this trend of regulation by enforcement. And while I understand that you can't comment on ongoing enforcement actions, uh, the industry is concerned that the Commission is expanding the scope of its activity in this area. Area. Um, and so we would encourage the commission to carefully consider whether the regula regulation initiatives are based on actual rules as opposed to uh, guidance or past enforcement actions. And if they are, either refrain from enforcement action or engage in appropriate formal rulemaking. And I was just wondering if you could share your views on the subject. That is something that I share that concern with you. I think what happens when you have a complicated regulatory framework um, is that there are inevitably going to be questions from actors who are trying to do, from market participants who are trying to do the right thing about how does this apply? You know, how can I make sure that I'm in compliance with this rule? Um, and sometimes there's a back and forth for a long time with the commission and it's not entirely clear where, which side of the line something is on. Um, so recently we, the staff um, initiated a share class selection disclosure initiative, which you mentioned, um, which basically said we think a lot of firms are probably out of compliance in, in the way that they're um, putting investors in particular share classes of mutual funds. And so um, we, the commission, ended up bringing a number of enforcement actions in the area. And one of the one of the concerns that I raised is that I think when we see a problem of this of of broad scale, we need to ask ourselves, have we been clear? Because you know, typically firms don't they have they have uh, an interest in staying in compliance. Now, obviously, there are some firms that have no interest in staying in compliance, and those are the firms that we um, often bring enforcement actions against. But there, but if we see a lot of firms that are not complying with something that we see as a regulatory obligation, I think we need to get out there and say to people, this is a regulatory obligation and you need to be complying with it. And then if people don't comply with it, then we can say, we told you this was a regulatory obligation and you didn't comply with it and now we're bringing an enforcement action against you. And so that should be the chronology. It shouldn't be, hey, we brought a bunch of enforcement actions, so now you know that's a regulatory obligation. Um, that's not really, I think, that's hiding the ball a bit, and that's not what I want to see us doing. Next question. This gentleman here. I think you. Right here. Uh, my name is Ann Vroom, um, private individual, but I wanted to ask you about a new category of, of broker, the capital acquisition brokers. Uh, designation um, that uh, the uh, FINRA issue rules in 2017. So I understand it's primarily a FINRA issue, um, but I haven't seen many many entities taking advantage of that that category. Do you have any thoughts about that? There, there's an area where 
Uh, it's, they don't deal with it. They don't take, they don't take custody of any accounts. They don't deal with individual investors. I mean, but it's, you know, it's a lot of regulation involved. Do you think people are just not registering and just going about their business in that regard or? That's my, my fear is that people are, are, um, probably doing things that, that are, you know, again, this sort of ties to the last question. If we see there's a widespread problem, I think we need to do something about it. And I'm not sure that that, that move by FINRA was the right step because it, you know, I don't have a lot of data on it at this point. So people who do have experience with why people are not choosing that option, I think it would be helpful if people came to talk to me too. But um, I think that should play into what we do on the finder's side. All right. Any other questions? There's one. John Burlaw, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much for being here and all you're doing to fight for middle class investors and, uh, ordinary entrepreneurs from, uh, from including the, the great innovators from fly, fly over land, like, uh, where the Wright brothers and, uh, uh, Henry Ford were from and the, if they, they didn't, if we get rid of the red tape, we'll see great innovators. We are seeing great innovators. I think we'll see the, some of the great innovators again, but if we get the accredited investor rule right and have more people invested in, uh, be investing and, uh, being able to take the risk they want from, uh, the Midwest and, and, and all regions. So thank you for all the work you're doing there. My question is, uh, we, w- uh, there seems to be a trend in Congress, uh, where the agenda People with agendas are having require putting obligations on the on the SEC to do things like you know require conflict minerals disclosure, climate disclosure, other things that really don't have to do with ensuring the accuracy of information for investors to make to weigh risks and make investment decisions. I mean, the latest is there was this bill that supposedly gets big test attack, a, a bipartisan bill by Mark Warner and Josh Hawley that would give the SEC the responsibility of having companies value user data that's not even going to be for annual investor reports, going to be like the basis of antitrust investigations and why they have the SEC doing it. I don't know. I don't know. But when there are these, uh, things that the S, that the SEC is, uh, Congress tells the SEC to do that are to achieve social agendas and aren't about investor protection, I know you can't, you really comment on the merits of particular legislation. You have to enforce the laws as written, but can you, is there, can you comment at all about what, how is this a drain on SEC resources to fight fraud? I mean, if the SEC is sort of hunting down, you know, information about conflict minerals or climate or uh, value of user data, is, are there less resources, say, to go after the next Bernie Madoff? And thank you so much again. Thanks, John. Um, I think that that people have seen our securities law framework, and they see that it's actually fairly effective, this this disclosure framework that we have up and running. And so they think, oh, well, I have an idea of what kind of disclosure I would like. I'm not an investor, but there is disclosure that would be interesting to me to have. So there's a lot of pressure on Congress and on us um, to require disclosure about a whole range of issues. Uh, and so I like to um, make sure that we as a regulator are sticking to our mission of getting information to investors 
who are trying to make decisions um, about that, you know, tie to that that are tied to financial materiality. That's the link that I I think it's important for us to maintain. And you know, any rulemaking that Congress asks us to do, obviously, is a decision on by Congress that they want us to spend resources in that area, and that means that we have to take those resources from another area to spend on on that area. And that is Congress's prerogative to make decisions about how we as the regulator are spending our time and resources. So we do have to follow that. But I think it is important to remember, you know, this sort of takes us back to where we started, which is the reason that the SEC um, is in existence is to set this regulatory framework within which our wonderful capital markets can continue to serve the purpose that they've served so well for so many years. And we want to really take that as a treasure and make sure that we we protect that. Um, and that's why I got so excited when I was given the opportunity to come to the SEC in this position, because I think our capital markets are a way to make sure that um, people who have good ideas about how they can do things that will make society a better place, how they can get the funding for those ideas, and how they can develop those ideas, um, and those ideas will then benefit people, they'll employ people, uh, and that leads to economic growth. And so it's really a way to make everyone's lives better, and so we have to make sure that our regulatory framework is a solid one within which these markets can function effectively. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, appreciate it very much. And this concludes our event. I guess a couple people might want to talk to you real quick and we'll go upstairs. That's great.